Well, welcome. Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, here we are in our 15th year of these programs. Uh, it's uh, been more than 15 years, probably three times that number that I've been interviewing and uh, talking with people about where they're coming from, what they're doing. And today, uh, obviously, for this program is no exception. We're going to be talking with a very interesting gentleman. He's got a book that we're going to talk about that really is, as usual, right up our alley. And uh, Alan Hunter is my guest. Alan, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Uh, I would say all the way from the UK, but that's originally <laughs> where you're from. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I was from the UK until about 30 years ago. Then I came to this country, and so now I'm from here. Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, you're actually <laughs> hailing today from Boston. And uh, in this particular conversation, at this particular time, uh, I'm sure you're dealing with uh, a great deal of cold weather and snow. Uh, you're going to be getting more, I can tell you that right now, because we are dealing with a lot of rain here in California. A uh, matter of fact, so much so, yes, there's been some destruction. There's been some flooding and this and debris and, and all of the things that kind of go along with excessive rainfall. But if you look at the pluses, this could pull us way, way out of the drought. Um, we have a lake called Lake Kachuma that only last week was at 33% of capacity. It went up 34 feet and is now at over 80% capacity as of this conversation. Now, as long as nobody pulls the plug in the tub, you know, we're going to be good for a while. Um, yes, you can say this may be due to climate change and so forth and so on. We won't even get into that. Uh, but change is inevitable. And when we were having, uh, I've lived here for almost 17 years, Alan, here in Santa Barbara. And when we were going through those wildfires and the dry periods with the drought, I said, it's going to change. We'll get our turn. Now, we're getting our turn now. It's a little more <laughs> than we'd like it all at once. But still, yeah. but still, uh, yeah. we're getting our turn. Uh, every part of the world goes through this that you know, uh, that normally might have a fairly green or, in our case, I guess you might say Mediterranean climate. And that's the way it is with life, too, isn't it? Uh, especially in the context um, of the book that you are uh, uh, talking to us about today, especially in the context of stories we need to know. We're reading your life path in literature. We want to talk about uh, how you came up with this concept in terms of this particular work, which uncovers six developmental milestones of personal development is revealed in 3,000 years of the world's finest literature. Now, I have to say, Alan, that you have probably read a hundred times more of the classics than I have. Uh, I'm working on some of them. I, I still consider Good. Stranger in a Strange Land uh, a classic. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I have okay. not read, but I'm going to get it. If I have to get it on Audible, I will. Uh, Dante's Inferno. Oh, good one. Yeah. Um, and, and I do have uh, Ulysses uh, mm -hmm. by that great Irish uh, um, uh, author, James yeah. Joyce. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, as I get older, there yeah. are even more classics. 
They're not being yeah. written by the dead authors. They're being written by new authors. And the public says, oh, this is a classic. Uh, it's an uphill battle, isn't it? It, it is. Correct. And it's like, okay, so when I come back in this, when I come back the next lifetime, uh, that's all I'm going to do is is read the classics. <laughs> of course, when I come back, they're going to be even more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us how you came up with this concept for this book. It's fascinating. Well, um, you know, this this book is in some ways the key to what I've been doing all my life. And it's certainly the key to the other 13 books, 12 books, I should say, that I've written. Um, so let me let me roll it back a bit. And that is I worked for many years with people trying to get them to tell their life stories and to find the story behind the story. So not just spilling the facts, but yeah. saying, well, why are these facts here? A bit like you just now, you say, well, all this rain is arriving. Um, it's a bad thing. Or is it always a bad thing? Let's try and let's try and figure our way around it. And there may be many responses. So it struck me as I was working with my clients that there was a problem that they would be um, they would be writing their life stories and they would generally cheer up immensely. But along the way, they weren't quite sure why they were doing it or where they were getting to. So I worked with one of my um, my finer students, and we said, "Well, how do we um, how do we deal with this?" And what emerged was that if you go back and look at the classic literature, that is all that stuff that until recently was guaranteed to be taught at colleges, you have a body of literature that everybody up until that time agreed was really good stuff. Why? Why would anyone read Homer? You know, it's really good. It's, it, why would they? Ah, so we started asking questions and I started asking questions and said, is there anything in common with these stories? What emerged astonished me. It showed that if you look at 3,000 years of Western literature, I'm not that good on Far Eastern literature, you look at Western literature, you will discover that in every story, the main figure or figures are invited on a journey. And that journey involves going past several distinct developmental mileposts. Always the same six, always in the same order, always saying the same thing. And I thought, well, I'd better test this. And so I started reading again as widely as I could. And it kept coming up six stages that the main character is invited to go through in order to become fully, as we would say today, actualized. Hmm. And if that happens, then you have an epic or, or, or uh, you know, a happy ending. But if it doesn't happen, if a character stalls and refuses to progress, you get a tragedy time after time after time. So, you know, it seemed to me that what had happened was I'd stumbled out of the mist and I'd seen a range of mountains in front of me there they were, plain as day. I didn't discover anything, but I got to see them in a different way. And so it seems to me that the reason that these pieces of literature are called classics, uh, must-reads, you know, the, the Western canon, call it what you want, the reason they continue to survive is that they've been uh, talking to us 
at an almost subliminal level. And the subliminal level is, this is the way human beings grow up. This is a deep structure of the human psyche. Read and learn. Read and learn. Because that's what the stories were about. They weren't just entertainment. Mm. Just entertainment made them memorable. But the deep structure was, here is this character who is going past these six developmental points. How about you, dear reader? And so that's one of the ways I can describe it. I hope that's not too abstract. I can certainly go into detail if you wish. Well, we will. We'll also go into detail of those six elements that you're talking about. It reminds me of conversations I've had with a dear friend of mine mm. who I met back in, I want to say, 2014. His name is Dr. Will Lin. He is a doctor, a PH, has a PhD in, in uh, mythology. Okay. And uh, we did a series of programs in, I believe it was 2015, called Mythosophia. Uh, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. And we did a series of 12 programs, one a month, on different aspects of mythology. Some I hadn't even thought of before. I have to tell you, it was a great education. I should have my PhD now, but <laughs> we, <laughs> we talked about um, mythology in, of all things, video games. We talked about uh, mythology in science fiction, in sports, uh, yeah. and even... And I didn't even think about this until after we'd finished the series and I was watching around Christmas time this one documentary about World War One and that great, um, uh, what do they call it? It was um, on Christmas Eve, uh, um, uh, a ceasefire, the great ceasefire yeah. where yes. the Germans and the uh, Allies decided mm -hmm. to stop fighting. They had dinner together. They even played a soccer game. And part of the mm -hmm. mythology was that they weren't sure who won the game, but it didn't really <laughs> matter because they were, they were working together, so to speak. They were playing together. They were living together. What really perplexes me about the whole thing, and probably many people, is how they could then, after, I don't know, 24 hours, mm -hmm. go back to killing each other. Yeah. That was yeah. the sad part. But... Mm -hmm. These were the kinds of conversations that we would have. It was amazing, uh, especially when it came to, for example, science fiction. And a dear friend of mine, uh, Roland Foster, who I worked with back in Phoenix back in the 80s, 1980s, I should say. I, I live much longer, and I have to make sure I say 19. <laughs> but he said to me during the, the, the television series Star Trek Next Generation, he says, mm -hmm. Star Trek Next Generation is our modern day mythology. Yeah, so I started it watching it from that perspective and it was right. And it was amazing. Um, we're talking with Alan Hunt and we're talking about his book that we hope you'll get a copy of. It is called Stories We Need to Know. Uh, reading your life path in literature. Going back 3,000 years, we'll talk about that as well. We encourage you to go to his website, alanhunter.net alanhunter.net, and you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and it is a pleasure to have Alan Hunter with us here on the program to talk about his work. And I'm curious, first of all, you say Western literature. Okay. Yes. Does Western literature only go back 3,000 years? Um, pretty much, yes. Okay. I mean, what we've got before 3,000 years ago is very fragmented. So we have 
the Middle Eastern story of Gilgamesh, which is probably the world's first preserved long story. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit fragmented, to say the least. Homer is where we peg our, our starting point. Uh, those stories were repeated, um, uh, presumably in performance, for many, many years before they were written down about 500 BC. Mm. So they they go back perhaps another three or four hundred uh, years before that. Before that, we don't we can't be really sure what people what people had as stories. Although possibly in my work on fairy tales, possibly we have evidence of those fairy tales going back to uh, and folk tales going back even further. But we can't be sure. So I like to start. As I say, I like to start with Homer and finish up even with Harry Potter. Interesting. Um, you know, when you mentioned Gilgamesh, it made me, uh, it, it brought to mind, as I mentioned before, uh, my friend Roland talked about Star Trek Next Generation as our modern day mythology. And there was one episode, probably one of the most fascinating, and there were many, uh, where he, uh, Jean-Luc Picard, was trapped on the planet's surface with an alien. Now, the aliens spoke English, but only spoke in what we'll call uh, metaphors that Picard could not understand at first until he made the leap, realizing he's talking about, uh, for example, there was one phrase, with his arms open wide. Uh, I forget the characters' names that this, this alien was referring to. Uh, and so Jean-Luc Picard started telling him, I believe he actually told him the story of Gilgamesh. Uh -huh. And they began to connect. Mm -hmm. And it was, yes. it was extraordinary. So would you say that what you, the work that you have done is sort of facilitating that with what you found, these six different aspects, something along the same lines where we begin to see that... There is a connection. There is a relationship between you and me and that we uh, need yes. to stop this silliness of the superficial divisions mm -hmm. between yeah. us as human beings and begin to realize that it's for naught. It is going to destroy us. Again, a, a house divided against itself cannot mm -hmm. and will not stand. Right. And yes. we can learn from these these great uh, literary uh, works. Well, that's exactly the point, I think, that is worth considering. And that is, um, if you have a story, if you tell a story, people may be moved by it, and they will may very well remember it. Truth, the old Yiddish saying, truth cloaks itself in story in order to be accepted. If you mm. simply tell what happens, people forget, they ignore, they don't, you know, a checklist of six things doesn't tell you the real experience of growing through six levels of awareness. Mm -hmm. A story can do that. You can say, just like uh, Captain Picard uh, did, you can say to somebody, do you remember that bit in Shakespeare? Do you remember that bit in the Odyssey? Do you remember that bit where they do this? Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? And suddenly you've got an emotional connection with the other person yeah. that goes very deep. All learning, all learning is emotional. If there's yeah. no emotion attached, we don't learn it. 
and you can get emotional about equations and um, and uh, chemical uh, you know co compounds if you like mm -hmm. i've seen people doing it but without the emotion which story can bring to something there's no learning there's no awareness we know this yeah. every every um, every church every synagogue every uh, temple that you can think of mm has a story attached to it and its particular religion, which they go through on an annual cycle. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, how history repeats itself. As you're it saying does. this, I was thinking about uh, the phrase, and I don't know where this comes from. You, you will probably be able to tell me about how Nero fiddled while Rome burned down. And I, as, a, as, as soon as you mentioned those kinds of things, that brought me to the, to the present, January 6th. Right, 2021, right. the state mm -hmm. capital, the nation, the nation's capital, the the the, mm -hmm. the seat, uh, the people's house, and so forth, mm -hmm. and how the then president basically was Nero fiddling while Rome, in this case, the state, the the nation's capital, burned it down. It didn't literally, but it certainly could have. So and, and and again, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to 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 cast aspersions or be political or anything. I'm just th these are the things that happened. Right. And it's like we keep repeating them. And then um, this year in mm -hmm. Brazil, in, in Brazil, Brazil yes, they did the yes. same thing. Yeah. The people overran the nation's capital mm -hmm. and said, no, 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 no. We're not playing this game you know, hey, if they can do it in America, we can do it here in Brazil, I guess. <laughs> I don't, I, um, all I know is that that it is fascinating how sometimes we choose to learn from history and sometimes we choose not to. Now, I have a question for you in that regard, because I pose that very phrase, how, you know, you know, it's said that, you know, if we're if uh, those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And my uh, guest said to me, learn what? <laughs> is that a valid question or is that a naive question that's like if you can't figure out what it is you're supposed to learn from history then you're gonna you're doomed to repeat it <laughs> it's a great question because it it throws it back to us and says well what do you think there is to be learned from history and most people don't even bother to ask themselves that question they don't bother to say, well, is there something there that I can I can play with the ideas and look at it differently and see it differently? They don't bother with that. They just, it's there in the news. Oh, shock, horror, gasp. They're telling me this. Shock, horror. Next day, same, same thing, different place. We don't pause for long enough to say, okay, people, what might be happening here? And how do we think about it? And, Oh dear! Sorry, there's a <laughs> no worries, no worries. Go ahead. I think uh, um, so. We um, we don't bother to go beneath the surface, yeah. which we can do when we have a story. So uh, you know what happened in Brasilia uh, just a couple of days ago was very strange. I mean, they stormed the president's palace yeah. and the 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 courts which isn't the seat of government at all. It's you know, a really soft target. But I guess they reckoned they could get in there without any serious... Of course they could. It would be just like me 
trying to storm my 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 local war memorial. You know, there's nobody <laughs> guarding it. There's nobody guarding it. Or the unfortunate situation of the gentleman who uh, was able to breach uh, Nancy Pelosi's home a few yes, months back. Very yeah. Now, what, what story was he telling himself yeah. about what was necessary for him to do with a hammer? You know, I don't care what political persuasion you are, but you're probably telling yourself a very strange story if it involves going to a politician's home and attacking her husband with a hammer. Um, you know, uh, the, <laughs> this the, is where storytelling goes wrong. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is he was listening to the Beatles song, Maxwell's Silver, <laughs> Silver Hammer. hammer. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Makes as much sense as anything. Hey, you know. <laughs> Um, so, so how much, and we're going to get into these six elements here in just a moment, but, um, how much, uh, of this great literature, this, uh, uh, Western literature, we'll use that terminology over the last 3000 years is, um, shall we say, uh, a mythological in context, uh, mm. or, or, uh, or is that how we should be taking it anyway? Yes. Uh, well, there are myths um, which have been around for a very long time, designed to explain the world and explore the world to the cultures that created them. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to think that this is, as it were, a different type of structure that I'm asking people to look at that can explain or perhaps help to explain the way human beings have always developed, even within the myths, even within the stories that, well, if you look at Roman myths, they were rewriting them all the time. All the time. They took the Greeks. The Greeks had already rewritten various other myths. The Romans rewrote them on average about every hundred years to suit whatever they thought they needed to say. Mm. But the basic underlying structures still remained. So when I talk about the six archetypes, I'm talking about something that is still with us, that is still part of the way we shape our reality. So if you'll um, allow me, I can get into them right now. Is this a uh, good moment? To... Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to have yeah. you do that. But first, okay. I want to remind you folks that you are listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true here uh, on this program uh, where we give you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. I'm Richard Dugan, your host for Tell Me Your Story, and we're talking with Alan Hunter, who is just about to dive into those <laughs> six elements. Now, before you dive in, is, is this the same six archetypes of the book you've written called The Six Archetypes of Love? Are these the same or are those different? archetypes. Yes, because you see what happens when we fall in love is we become slightly different people to the people we were before. And most people fall in love and they don't know what's happened to them. And so they don't know how love is going to unfold for them. And so they tend to wind up divorcing way too soon. But mm. the same six archetypes role, uh, rule every part of ourselves, it seems to me anyway. And we have, I think, three different parts of ourselves. We have who we are spiritually, where we're going on our spiritual path. We have who we are in terms of our community and who we are in terms of our family relationships. Mm. The three aspects, it seems to me, that we can 
look at. And the idea, you hope, is to be developed fully in all three, uh, or as fully as you can manage. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, as it were, I'll give you, give you an example. Here you are, you're interviewing me, you're obviously very, very good at what you do. I know from your work that you are extremely good at what you do, but as you said, you didn't start at this level of expertise. You started 45 years ago, I think you said, and when you started, you were probably a little bit, um, okay, how do I do this? You were learning on the job, I'm sure. And gradually, as the years went by, you, you perhaps very quickly as the years went by, you reached a level of expertise that is to be admired. Wonderful. And some people do that in their jobs. I can think of a lawyer I know who is fantastically good at his job. He is, he is a, just magical in the courtroom. He can, he can turn anything around. He goes home. <laughs> And he can't talk to his teenager. Mm. He can't make connection. And he goes out into his community and he's tremendously shy. He is, you might say, incredibly highly developed in his professional world and severely underdeveloped in the other worlds. And he doesn't know what to do about it because he has no sense, and at least he didn't until I started talking with him, about the six levels we can achieve. So the six levels, you start, as it were, as what I call the innocent. So if you want an image for that, think of a baby. You know, a baby is, well, it's innocent. Mm -hmm. Baby can't do much. Except a baby can love unconditionally and a baby can trust unconditionally. And you think, yeah, but that's a baby, so who cares? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell anyone who'll listen. Uh, you won't have much of an adult relationship with anybody unless you learn how to love and trust unconditionally. So that early, early stuff that we have, even as we arrive as the innocent, sure, we have to learn how to use that, not to just trust indiscriminately, but we're born with something really powerful. If you look at the literature, most of the characters either are starting at that point, the innocent, or they think back to when they were innocent and mm. they, um, they regret the passing of time. Now, yeah. Yeah. babies grow and become toddlers, and pretty soon they learn a few tricks. And when they go off to school, they learn a few more tricks. And one of the things they learn is, got to make friends. Got to make friends, because I... I, I, I if I'm on my own, I'm dead meat in the playground. Yeah. You know? uh, kids learn this very fast. And so they make friends with all sorts of people. It's the same thing that happens when you get a new job. You go to a new office, you look around and say, well, <laughs> I think I better make friends with people until I know who I can trust and who's an idiot and who is a good person. <laughs> when you first fall in love, And God knows we've all fallen in love a few times. To begin with, you're a bit like a baby. It's all, wow, terrific, yippee. And then you start becoming like the kid going to school that I call the orphan phase. You start saying, well, um, well, how do other people do this love thing? You know, how how often do I bring flowers? Do I bring flowers? You know, what, what do I say? What do I do? And 
we start looking around for other people to guide us. Orphan phase. Now that's great. A lot of people spend their whole lives in orphan phase. They are wonderful people. They will know how to look after others and they will not look to go outside their immediate community or the immediate expectations. And that's fine. I have nothing against that. Some of the best people I know are good orphans who do what's expected of them in order to keep the friends, to keep the community at any cost. And sometimes the cost is very high. The people who try too hard and become exhausted while supporting their neighbor. Mm. So this is the orphan stage. And we have to learn from that. To what extent do I attach to other people? And to what extent do I decide what I want? Now, I actually had a client in my counseling business, because I do extensive counseling uh, work, who uh, said to me, one day she said, I, you know, my mother asked me, what sort of ice cream do you want? She was um, 20 at the time. So my mother asked, what sort of ice cream do you want? And she said, I, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me what sort of ice cream you want me to like. 20-year-old. Wow. College kid. A 20-year-old. She had attached so strongly to mother that she had stopped making her own decisions. Mm. Happens a lot. And when kids go off to college, they sometimes panic because how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? I've taught at college for you know, nearly 40 years. Uh, I know this domain. Now, the orphans of this world will be kind and wonderful. They will probably make extremely good people within organizations. They'll be very good, perhaps, um, police officers. Uh, they'll certainly be good uh, at looking after others. And yet there's a negative side. Because if you get someone who doesn't know what to do at the wrong moment, that person is a shoe-in for the local gang. Mm. Mm. If you're a young, if you're an, an adolescent, and you don't have much money, and you've got to attach to something because otherwise everyone's going to beat you up, you're going to join a gang or something. I've worked in the prisons. I know how this works. I've seen it again and again. In fact, I'll give you a quotation. There was one man who was in for 20 years, and uh, I said, well, <laughs> you, you must have a bit of a history. And he said, yep. He said, um, turned out I was the only kid on my street who hadn't got arrested. So I figured I'd better go out and do something. <laughs> you know? Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. True fact. I won't give any names. That's, yeah. uh, no, no, no. That we, don't, we don't go now, there. <laughs> what then happens is the conformism of the, of the, of the orphan is very comfortable. Uh, but not everyone's happy with that. This is a bit like a teenager who says, well, well why should I take the trash out? You know, why, why should I dress like everybody else? This is the questioning stage. It can be really annoying, especially with teenagers. But I think it's a sign of um, emerging in independence. Yeah. I call this the pilgrim. Because the pilgrim in ancient times, in fact, still today, you can still go on the, the pilgrimage to the uh, um, uh, Santa Maria de Compostela, um, uh, San, no, San Ignacio de Compostela, I think. Um, Santiago, I'm getting all the saints wrong. Santiago de Compostela. Sorry, it's a thousand miles trek if you take the Camino 
today, and people do it in the thousands every year or throughout Europe. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Doesn't it go through Spain and Portugal? Am I correct? Spain and Portugal to right to the Finisterre, the ends of the earth. That's where it ends or begins. Oh, wow. And people do this because as pilgrims, they have to do it on foot. You can't, you can't ride a horse or you shouldn't ride a horse. You can't take a car because they're trying to work out what their relationship to the divine is. Mm. What am I here for? I walk until I discover. This is a tradition that is older even than the literature of 3,000 years ago yeah. because there were pilgrimages by created or, or undertaken by those people who erected Stonehenge, who erected the, 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 the standing stones throughout France. And Stonehenge dates back to probably 2000 BC. Mm. So people go on pilgrimages to discover who they are. Today, most of us don't. Most of us go to college. Yeah. <laughs> they say, you've got four years to work out what you're going to do, son yeah. or daughter. And, and the beautiful thing about that is that uh, that four years stays with you for another 40 with your, uh, with your student loan. <laughs> exactly. You're paying and you're paying and you're paying. <laughs> and there's a lesson in there somewhere, but that's for you to figure out. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll connect the dots somehow. <laughs> yeah, so that's the pilgrim. The pilgrim can be really annoying as a figure. Oh, because yeah. this is the person who says, I know what I don't want, but I don't know yet what I do want. Yeah. Now, if we go back to uh, Homer, the Odyssey, you might say that uh, Odysseus is on a pilgrimage all the way around the Mediterranean. Yeah. Except he thinks he's a bold warrior coming home from Troy, where he's actually been the world's most horrible butcher of men, women, and children. He thinks he's a big guy. And then he gets lost in the Mediterranean. And he has to go from all these blown to places. He doesn't know what they are or where they are. And the, the story again and again asks him, what are you going to learn, Odysseus? What are you going to learn so that you can go home and be a king where it counts? Mm. And he doesn't always learn very much. The thing is, though, that the, the pilgrim eventually reaches a point where he says, you know, I think I know what I have to do. And at that point, that person becomes what I call a warrior lover, a peaceful fighter for what he or she loves. That's a really big moment. That's the person who says, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care if it pays. And the parents go, oh, my God, how are you going to pay your college loans? The kid says, I want to go to Africa and teach, you know, sanitary awareness to this tribe or that, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And the parents go, oh, you know, put all this money into college. Now he's never going to work. doesn't matter. It also comes when you decide who you want to spend your life with. You say, I don't care what anyone else says. This is the person I want to be with. And this is how I want my life with that person to be. And we see examples of that every day. And sometimes we see them in strange ways. You know, ask any single mother struggling to put food on the table for two, three kids. And you'll see a warrior lover. You'll see someone who will do anything to get her kids a good start in life. Wow. That's a powerful thing. Yeah, 
It really is. You know, you made me think of a, uh, a number of things, and some of them I'll remember, and some of them I won't hear. Um, I think that I've actually been doing this uh, interviewing thing for 50 years, although there was a lull between 1972 and 1979. Uh, mm -hmm. My first interview was actually with a gentleman by the name of Pat McMahon. He was uh, in mm -hmm. the media. I was mentioning this before about one of the pictures uh, uh, I was sharing with you of a video that I put together. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I interviewed him for my eighth grade uh, class uh, um, uh, uh, report, <laughs> uh, the class report, basically, what do you want to be when you grow up, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what's really funny is I interviewed this guy, uh, uh, and then, of course, there was a picture taken of me at the age of 12. Mm -hmm. And I wish I still had that cassette tape wow. of that interview. It would have been, wow. would have been would, great to have. Uh, be that as it may... Um, uh, it's it's fascinating, and I've really tried to stay away from regrets of the past. Now, I go back. You know, you talked earlier about innocence, mm. and I remember uh, the times of innocence, even even into even into high school, uh, as that mm. began to fade away. But mm. how the way that uh, I and my brother and sisters and neighbors. And classmates grew up, specifically those who lived in our neighborhood. We ran the neighborhood. Now, we were not a gang. Don't get me wrong. But we played in everybody's yard. Not backyards, unless we yeah. had permission. But in the yeah. front yards. And in, on my street, our street was Hubble. H-U-B-B-E-L-L. -L. I'll never forget it, of course. There were houses, front yards. Every house on the block had a front yard. And there were only two or three houses that had fences around their front yards. All the others were grass with a driveway coming out. Some of them just it was a driveway. Some of them it was a driveway into a covered parking, not necessarily a garage with a door. And we would play kickball. And the diamond was in my my parents' front yard to my father's consternation because he was always <laughs> trying to grow things. Uh, trees in particular. And um, we had the best time, especially at night, uh, playing uh, the equivalent of it was almost like combat hide and seek. We weren't wow. trying to hurt anybody, yeah, yeah. but it was it was like almost a military exercise to not get caught. Mm. And mm. we had and of course, when you heard mom or dad saying, hey, it's time to come in or whatever. We we went home. Right. And we weren't worried about uh, traffic. We were lucky at one end of the street was a T-section. Mm -hmm. So if someone came around the corner, they were coming around usually very slow. So we had plenty of time to get out of the street. Mm -hmm. um, and it was marvelous. Now, if you were to Google Earth this street today, mm -hmm. I think it's 100% of the yards now have f fences or brick walls around them. Yeah, what a loss. Yeah. And but I go back to those times. Uh, I remember how, how my brother and I used to sneak out our bedroom window. Now we only had a single level home. We would sneak out our bedroom window, <laughs> and there were these big bushes with rather thick limbs, and we could actually climb onto the roof of the house. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, we had a pine tree in the backyard that my father planted in 1959 when they first moved there that was large enough when I was 12 or 13 or maybe a little younger. 
uh, that we used to climb, and my father hated it. So eventually what he did was he cut all the limbs off up to about 12 or 14 feet. Now, bear in mind, this tree was 30 or 40 feet tall. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, it's like I, I reminisce about these times, and I think, wow, you know, what a, what a great time to be alive. And, yeah, yes. it would be nice to go back, yes. you know, but, but at the same time, I'll go back in my mind with those emotions, you know, mm-hmm. camping out in the backyard with my mother's Indian blankets to mm-hmm. her consternation. Yes, I bet. <laughs> um. And then I think about, say, the last uh, 30, 40 years, going through one marriage and a divorce, and I'm in another marriage. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then some, a lot of the lessons that I've learned over the years. Mm-hmm. And there are, there's one gentleman in particular who's, who knows me fairly well. I've known him for, well, 16, 17 years since I moved here. And he says, you know, I, I, you know, I'm amazed at what you've been through and the things that you do. He says, and I, I say this only to have you to, to talk about this from another, uh, from an objective ob- observational perspective. He said to me, he says, uh, you really walk your talk. Mm. And, I, and I'm going, what? Seriously? Because mm. there are times when, you know, uh, I wonder. What about what about in these stories uh, of yeah. these individuals, male or female, for that matter? Yeah. yeah. Um, and these stories, whether they be uh, real, nonfiction, or otherwise, mm-hmm. where they're on their path and they're really struggling with that aspect of walking their talk, that they get challenged along the way. Says, no, no, come on. This is expediency. Uh, and, and I will tell you, the, what just flashed in my mind was Kevin McCarthy on the House floor during yes. this past week of um, uh, trying to become Speaker of the House and thinking, what are you doing? Yes. Let it go. Yes. You know, uh, but there's too much ego involved. There's exactly. too much pride uh, and too much, much. As a matter of fact, on the 14th vote, I remember after the 14th vote, there was a little it looked like British politics in Parliament, you know. Um, but do we see that questioning by these individuals in these great literary works? Oh, yes. Oh, questioning. Yes. yes, because over and over again in these stories, um, the main character faces difficulties which he or she can question and wrestle with, or there's always the temptation to just, oh, step back and do whatever is expected, do whatever the crowd says. That's the pilgrim who's asking the difficult questions, giving up perhaps, or just stepping back and saying, I can't manage it. You know, a really good example of that would be perhaps every one of the classic detective stories you know, in the classic detective story, the uh, the detective begins, he, she doesn't know anything, innocent, but rapidly becomes what I call an orphan mm. because the, um, the, the, the problem is there before them and they say, okay, how do we deal with this? And the police are there and the police don't really like the detective, etc. And the police frequently try to warn the detective off. In other words, be a good boy and do what we expect you to, which is what the orphans expected to do. Mm. Be a good boy. 
what then happens in the detective story, whether it's on Netflix or the movies or whatever, is the detective tends to say, hmm, I'm not giving up. And this is Dashiell Hammett. This is uh, all of those stories. And the detective goes on ahead as a pilgrim. And then at a certain point, the detective, the investigator, comes up against somebody who says, either you give up or we're going to send you to jail or take away your license or whatever. You mm -hmm. know, classic. Yeah. Who done it? And that is a decision point. If the detective at that point says, oh, this is just too much trouble. I don't, really don't like it. I'm going to go home and have a cup of tea. You don't have a story. Yeah. But that's the point when the detective, if he or she is worth anything, steps up and says, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to solve this because the truth is important to me, because it's important to catch whoever did this. Mm -hmm. and that's the Maltese Falcon, right? Um, one of the great classics of detective literature. Yeah, there's another one I got to read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a good one. You're, yeah. um, you're, well, watch the movie, a fantastic movie. Oh, there you go. Humphrey Bogart, really good. Mm. So when, when that happens, when the detective decides to become a warrior lover, it's not for money. It's not for gain. It's because the truth is more important. It's that sort of moment when in every movie the hero says, I don't care what you do to me. I'm not giving up. And we have that in reality, too, uh, because we'll have reporters who unfortunately will lose their lives yes. because they want the truth told. They want the truth shown. My own best friend, actually, a, a reporter uh, for BBC, not BBC, ITV Channel 4 in Britain, was killed in Iraq hmm. because he insisted on going back to try and tell the tale. He was assassinated by um, by basically terrorists. They threw him off the top of the building. Hmm. Uh, he cared more about that, you might say, than his family because his family were not terribly well provided for. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, so there are risks. There are very powerful risks. Yeah. Almost every story that you'll see that is an adventure-based type of story from Hollywood, from in, in, in the popular press, has that moment when the warrior lover emerges and says, I'm going to do it anyway, full steam ahead. Mm -hmm. Now, this could also be, in a more domestic sense, I work with a lot of teachers, and a lot of teachers burn out, especially inner-city teachers. They usually burn out in about four years. So they've gone to college, they've got their certifications. Four years later, they're toast. They say, I can't do this. It's too hard. It's too much. Mm -hmm. Some persist. But all of them reach a point when they go, I don't know how much longer I can do this. This can be the moment when they give up and they say, I'm going to go and work at Starbucks. And I call that going back to orphan phase. Or it can be the moment when they say, ah, I'm burned out. Ha, huh, so what? It's just burnout. That means I have to use what I've got differently. Those are the people, in my experience, who've gone forward and said, oh, okay, uh, I'm, I've learned everything I can from the classroom. It's exhausting. Now I'm going to use my teaching and educating skills to work with people in a different way. 
Yeah. Some of them have gone on to run tutoring agencies or, or to be consultants or whatever. So their wisdom is not trampled underfoot by a, a room full of, of, of uh, angry 12-year-olds, but their ex expertise can be used differently. Now, when that happens, we've got a new phase. We have the fifth phase, and I call that the monarch pair or the king and queen. Why do I call it that? Well, because a king and a queen, ideally, and I'm not talking about the British royal family, who seem to be making a mess of everything. <laughs> um, ideally, a king and a queen have to work together. And it has to be the executive power that is usually invested stereotypically in the king, who can have people executed and can have them promoted. And the balancing compassionate power in the queen who traditionally stereotypically gets people pardoned nurtures the country we have to have these two aspects in each of ourselves blended now what does that look like i've seen lots of families where um kid does something wrong and mum says wait till your dad gets home <laughs> you know? And dad, dad comes in and says, you're grounded forever, or whatever it is. No, 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 that doesn't do it. That doesn't do it. Mum stands in the corner going, oh, you poor thing, you're surely not grounded forever. <laughs> no, that's, that's a family that hasn't got it quite right. Yeah. There's too much power on one side and too much compassion on the other. Yeah. Each parent needs to be a balance of both. Each yeah. parent needs to be able to say, you know what, I don't think you, know, you need to stay home today and take a mental health day. Yeah. That's the compassionate side. Yeah. And on the other side, the parent needs to be able to, the same parent needs to be able to say, I know you don't like it, but you've got to do it. Yeah. Do it anyway. I think my parents had that balance. Uh, I think of... Uh... When I was very young, I lost, uh, <laughs> I lost my pet uh, stuffed pet rabbit. Couldn't uh, find it anywhere. And uh, my, I still remember this. My father was consoling me outside in the carport, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so forth. And eventually found it. Uh, another and my mother and father could could uh, could wield the belt quite sufficiently, but they also. <laughs> could be quite compassionate so they had that balance uh and and um i give them i mean just so much credit my father will be 92 this year my mother 89 goodness, goodness. and they're, they've been married they'll be married 66 years this june wow. um and just remarkable set of parents that um, some would say that uh i i was uh, brought born into others mm -hmm. would say that i chose I'll take I'll take either. It doesn't matter because <laughs> yep. it it's been a great experience. Um, we're talking with Alan Hunter. AlanHunter.net is the website. And this man is uh, quite prolific. In addition to the, the work we're talking about now, stories we need to know, reading your life path in literature. He also has uh, uh, 12 others. Uh, and this one is interesting. Write your memoirs, the sole work of telling your life story. We also have, as was mentioned earlier, the six archetypes of love, as well as 
the Grimm's Brothers he, uh, healing tales, interesting, princes, prince, frogs, and ugly sisters. I will tell you I had four of them. None of them, <laughs> none of them is ugly. Um, we also have the path of synchronicity. That's a fun one in terms of the just the concept alone. Spiritual hunger, gratitude and beyond. The Sanity Manual. Oh, my God, we just need to hand that out to every member of Congress. <laughs> Life Passages from Coastal Command to Capacity, the memoir of a Second World War airman. Joseph Conrad and the Ethics of Darwinism. That sounds fascinating. We Boy, we've got many interviews to do. And how they met. This is a novel about how... How people met at different levels and at different times of their lives. And sometimes this uh, proves to be too confusing for them. Finding a way forward and a way back to trust. Is that the center of this book? Well, you'll have to get a copy through his website, which is alanhunter.net. Alan Hunter is my guest here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you for staying with us with uh, Alan Hunter as we are talking about, oh, just so many great things, especially uh, around uh, uh, stories uh, you need to read, stories you need to know, uh, and so many that I probably know them mm -hmm. more from the experiences that I've had in my life and that if I read these stories, I'm going... Oh, yeah, I can. I know what, exactly what they're talking about here. So on maybe on the one hand, I don't need to read them, but I, I would still love to to have that that concept, because even uh, the, 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 there's one comedian who uh, years and years ago uh, I used to love listening to because he would use what I referred to as uh, uh, obscure historical references. You mm. may know who I'm thinking of. And I said, and they're only obscure because I don't know about them. <laughs> But um, to me, that's important when people start making using these metaphors, going back to what we talked about earlier with Star Trek and that one particular episode where the two characters, main characters, were speaking in metaphor of their culture yes. from their planets was fascinating. Um, I want to ask you uh, specifically about the book on memoirs um, before yeah. we before we come to the close of our program here. I found it fascinating how young some of these memoir writers are. And I think, no, you haven't lived enough to write a memoir. Yes. Not that you can't. You certainly may go ahead and do it. It's like, I don't think that I can really write my memoir at least until I reach the age of 70. Now, I'm not saying that there's a, there's a rule. But it just seems as though you've got to live a good portion of your life in order to have something to write about. Yes, I would agree. And, you know, I've nothing against people writing. Not at all. Not at all. You know, uh, because a memoir is just a portion of your life. It's not the whole of your life. So yeah. presumably you could write a memoir at the age of you know, 17. And I think several people have. Um, but uh, what we're looking at here is whether there's any wisdom, deep wisdom in the memoir. I've taught memoir for, gosh, a very long time, uh, I suppose 30 years. And what emerges is that when people are ready to write a memoir, often 
you know, 50s and 60s is a mm -hmm. good sort of time to start thinking about it. Usually 60s is a good point. They, it's because they know they've got something that they need to sort out. They've got some wisdom somewhere that they need to bring to the surface. And they say, well, maybe I should tell my story because it's kind of unusual. Yeah. But what I discover is that a good memoir writer, or a, a, I should say a, a responsible memoir writer, is going to go through all of the six stages that I've described in the process of writing the memoir. First off, it's a, I can write a memoir. Yeah. And second off, that's the innocent. Second is, oh, how do I write a memoir? Somebody yeah. tell me how to do it. That's the orphan. And the third stage, the pilgrim says, you know, I don't want to write it the way they wrote it. Or they, I want to write it my way. Uh, that's the pilgrim. And the pilgrim finally becomes to, gets to the point where he or she, usually it's a she actually, women are very interested in writing the memoir, uh, where the, the writer says, hmm, this is a story that has to be told because, for whatever reason. Mm. That is the warrior lover saying, I want to write this memoir so people can understand what it's like to be black growing up in in Roxbury. Uh, well, it's like to be Native American Indian growing up on a reservation or whatever. Yeah. Fine. Gradually, though, they begin to discover that this fourth stage, the warrior lover, is not the full fullness of it. They say, oh, right. When they make it to the monarch level, they start to see it's not just me that's the center of this story. It's a bigger story. It's about how human beings got to this place and what we can do to change something that could be tragic. Yeah. That's, that's the king and queen, as it were, trying to keep the realm functioning. And beyond that, actually, there is the sixth level, which I call the magician. The magician is not the magician that you would imagine, perhaps, someone who has a magic wand who goes, bling, mm -hmm. and everything, everything changes. And I think this is where Harry Potter's story has got it absolutely right. The magician doesn't and can't change anything fundamentally. You can, you can turn somebody into a mouse for a while, <laughs> you can, you can, you know, but you can't fundamentally change the nature of that mouse. As yeah. we discovered, of course, uh, in the stories, or that person, or, or Voldemort, or whomsoever. What the magician does is changes the minds of those who want change to continue. So Dumbledore, as those of us who know the Harry Potter stories will recognize, doesn't make it to the end of the series. He dies, but he doesn't need to stay alive because by letting his young people at Hogwarts learn about magic, he's discovered that they are ready to take on the work that is necessary to contain evil. You can't get rid of evil. No. Um, J.K. Rowling is very good about that, but to contain the evil so that it doesn't harm quite as badly. Yeah. That's the magician. And I, you say, oh, well, that's great. You know, how does that work in real life? Uh, it works very often. I'm a grandparent. I can't run around after my grandkids as fast as my daughter and uh, son-in-law can. Uh, but 
because I have a loving connection to these kids, if they're misbehaving, I know a trick or two about how to change the energy so that they start behaving again. Mm. Say, well, you don't need to do that. You can do better than that. And they go, oh, oh, oh yes. And they, their own energy changes them. So I just remind them. Yeah. It's like the team coach. Mm-hmm. The team coach doesn't play on the field. The team coach says, yeah, move that guy over there, take that guy off, put that guy, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And the energy of that is terrific. Yeah. I, yeah. I used to work at Curry College, and they had a really terrible football team. It was just awful for years. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. It was, it was sad. Um, and then at one point about, oh, must be probably 15 years ago now, um, some one of the former Patriots players, a very, very good football player, and he'd been in coaching, um, was hired by the college and he came onto the field and he looked at these same bunches last year and the year before, same sort of slightly lame bunch. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't give them long lectures. He didn't make them run around the field until they had muscles the size of, you know, brontosaurus's kneecaps or anything like that. He saw what they had and said, how do we use this better? How do, how do we make this better? The first year, the first season he was in charge, they started winning games. And everyone went, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. The second year, they won three quarters of their games. The third year, they were on their way to the state championships. Mm. He didn't handle the ball. He didn't go onto the field and make it happen. Right. He was able to mobilize the power that exists in all of us. Mm-hmm. Now, to some extent, we've all got bits of that. You've got this. I mean, here you are. You have what it takes to run an interview at a very high level. And you know how to handle that because you, you know how to make the, the magic happen. Mm-hmm. Not everyone can do that. Not everyone tries to do that. Yeah. But when we know we can do that, that's when we come into a full awareness of our power. And so these six stages, you're required to, as it were, learn every lesson, go through the stages in order, never slip back. And then if you're lucky for just a few minutes, every couple of weeks, you can work the magic. I have found it fascinating how when... As you put it, uh, the magic is worked. You're usually not aware of it mm-hmm. until either A, you're in the middle of it, mm-hmm. but you are so involved, you're so in, your, in the zone that you don't really think about it per se. It's just flowing. It's just happening. And then when you get to the other side, you, you come out the other side of that and you look back and go... Wow, that was incredible. How much time went by? We mean three hours. It was just only 10 minutes. Yeah, that's you know? exactly it. 
Uh, it reminds me of something I saw in the documentary about ayahuasca where one gentleman, he, he had his experience and he came back and he was sharing this in the video in the documentary. And he says, yeah, I did this and this and this and this and this. And when I woke up, uh, I asked, uh, so, so uh, uh, how, how long was I gone? Uh, two days. Said, what? It was only 10 <laughs> minutes. It was only 10 yeah. minutes. You know. uh, so it's, it's quite extraordinary. And, and I have to say that I've been the recipient of this magic um, uh, over the years and, and grateful for it, grateful for it as well. Uh, Alan Hunter is my guest, and uh, we are talking, oh, man, we're just talking about a lot of great stuff here on the program. AlanHunter.net is the website that I want you to go through. Uh, he's published 12 books so far and, uh, in, uh, and basically done more than 100 uh, radio and uh, media interviews as well. Uh, coaching is one of his things, and uh, you can uh, contact him as well. Uh, experience? Well, um, he's been doing this his whole life with nearly 40 years of experience working <clears throat> with people ages 17 and up, a professor emeritus of literature at Curry College uh, who had had a horrible football team. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I understand that uh, MIT's got a rotten football team too, oh. but that's another story for another day. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> You're a faculty member at the department, uh, the Department of Narrative Medicine at Bay Path University. Mm -hmm. Now, what is narrative medicine? That's fascinating. Uh, basically, it's using writing, uh, narrative, and storytelling in order to cure what ails you. And it's very, very good for removing anxiety, depression, uh, all kinds of psychosomatic and actual somatic ailments. And so that's one of the things that I've been doing. And wow. I have some very specific techniques that I use, which are all writing and visualization based. And they help people to get in touch with, well, <laughs> the real story. Absolutely. Not the story that they've been telling themselves, yeah. but the real story. And uh, that's what we're talking about here on uh, this program with Alan Hunter, alanhunter.net. And this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it is uh, an absolute pleasure, an absolute joy. The magic has been happening in this program uh, because we have been, uh, you know, it's, it's like every time you, as, you, as you use the example of changing out players in a sporting event, you change the dynamic Yes. On yes, the on do. the field, if you will, on the playing surface, whatever it may be, uh, mm -hmm. you can't really do that so much with some of these solo sports like uh, uh, singles tennis or golf, uh, that kind of thing. But uh, I was watching. I was watching. Uh, I don't watch. I'm not a big hockey fan. Okay, but it has elements of soccer in it that I, I liked. So I'm watching this game with a friend of mine who put me up for a night when I couldn't get home during these uh, this rainy season we've got going, and he tells me that every each team switches mm -hmm. out a player every 45 seconds. Wow! Because it's so fast paced that mm -hmm. you you get exhausted you've got to you've got to change it up you've got to you've got to do that so the dynamic on the ice is constantly changing 
Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's very fast paced. And these gentlemen are incredibly talented. And I can't believe how they maneuver, not just the stick, as they call it, but the skates and how they move and, and shift. And, and I just do all the things that they do. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's hockey is uh, um, ballet on ice, in a matter oh, of yeah. speaking. It's, it's just incredible. Cool. Uh, yeah. But it, it's it's really true. You if you can change the dynamic, if it's if it's yeah. singles, then you change your energy. That yeah. changes the dynamic on the playing surface, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, uh, it's yeah. It, it can be incredible. I want to ask you before we wrap this up. You say you've been doing this your whole life. Yeah, it feels like it. Yeah. Are you saying that when you popped out the womb? <laughs> 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 so when did you first realize that? This was, this was the, 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 this was the direction. This is, this is my path. Mm. Uh, it, it's one of those things that dawns on you fairly, fairly quickly. I think uh, around about the age of 12, I started reading as a way to try and work out how other people dealt with difficulties. So I would find stories of people who dealt with difficult difficult situations mm. and I thought, oh, okay so this, this made me feel less alone less of an orphan i continued reading uh, stories uh, in school and i was very fortunate to have actually a very gifted english teacher who uh, who's now dead but he was kind of a legend in his own time kind of a magician in his own time mm. and uh, he was able to let me see that stories, no matter where they came from, whether they were, you know, George Eliot or Shakespeare or Jane Austen, they were essentially about some sort of journey being undertaken. And something had to be learned. What had to be learned? And was it life enhancing or was it something else? All the good literature seemed to be life enhancing, apart from the tragedies. And so gradually I said, well, I want to be a t teacher of literature. That's why I wrote the book on Joseph Conrad. That was converted from my doctoral thesis at Oxford. And I said, you know, here is somebody who was using his stories to explore how people grow or don't grow. <laughs> and um, that, I think, is the point when it became absolutely central to me to say literature is doing something and has been doing something all this time that can't be done any other way. It's it, not an instruction manual, but it is a guide. It also seems, too, that you have discovered something that, uh, a perspective of the literature that no one else has found, per se. Is that true, or, or are you sort of uh, gleaning off of other people's um, uh, concepts of uh, uh, this ancient literature of 3,000 years? Well, you know, I think the ideas have been around for a long time, but not spelled out in the way that I do. Ah. Some people say, oh, you know, Joseph, Joseph Campbell had a few ideas about that. Mm -hmm. And I would say, yes, and he stopped developing his ideas just as they were getting really interesting. Mm. He needed to push a little further. Um, but I think... You know, there's Joseph Campbell, uh, Jung, of course, was looking at literature as a way to find a guide to the inner workings of the human psyche. And he wrote 
a huge amount uh, on the basis of that, working with various people who found what he called archetypes in other places. Uh, schizophrenics, for instance, tend when they are when they are um, going through a, a dark passage, they tend to go through the six stages. Mm. And they may not be able to write about it, but they can usually draw pictures about it. So this was sort of bubbling around, and I thought, nobody's bothered to look at literature in this way. Yeah. I wonder whether, whether there's more. Yeah. And suddenly it became evident there was a lot more. So discover, no. You know, there was a range of hills beyond the mist. I just happened to walk through the mist and say, oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mentioned Stranger in a Strange Land. Many years ago, I bought the real thick uh, hard hard copy. Hard copy, not hardcover. Yeah. And I started trying to read it, and it was just, uh, I was like, oh, I just really struggled uh, to yeah. get through the first few chapters. Then I found it available on Audible, and I read it, and I went back and forth over sections and so forth. The narrator was great with the with the voices. Um, first of all, I loved the story. It is so fantastic. I hated the ending. No spoiler here. No spoiler. I wasn't fascinated, but then I realized, you know, even though I hated the ending, that there was really no other way they could have ended it. Um, but I felt like when I finished it, and I, to use the book's, term i grokked it yes okay um i realized oh wow i finally finished one of the one of the classics one of the big ones yes. one of the big ones you know so next uh, next on my agenda is that 24-hour period in dublin ireland written by james uh -huh. joyce called yes. ulysses um i'm gonna push my way through that one as well and then uh, i'm gonna look for dante's inferno on audible mm -hmm. i know it's there uh, again, yeah. so that when I hear my friend <laughs> Dr. Will Lynn make reference in the mythological standpoint to to things from uh, Dante's Inferno and the Seven Le Levels of Hell and all of that, <laughs> I'll know what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to tell you, Alan, this has been uh, extraordinary, magical. Yes, I will. I'll put thank that you. word on it. <laughs> and I thank you so much. Excuse me. Well, the synergy has been great, so uh, oh. thank you for being the person you are to make it make it work. Well, I hope that we can have you back. I mean, you're so pro prolific in regards <sighs> to the writings, and I think that, that we might have you back, not just to talk about many of your other books, but also this aspect of writing one's memoirs. I will right. tell you that as much fun as I have sharing my stories intermixed in these programs, I have a feeling that I would probably have somebody write my memoir. In other words, I would give them the stories and so forth, mm -hmm. maybe record them or be in their presence and they can take notes yeah. or whatever, yeah. or yeah. have them ask yeah. me questions. That's uh, a good way too. Yeah. And then let them compile it rather than me trying to do that, because I'm still working on a book right now called Choices that uh -huh. I've been working on since 19... No! 2001. <laughs> okay. Quite recent. <laughs> and eventually I will get it. I will get it published. Uh, I believe in divine right timing too. So it'll come yes. out when it's time. It'll come. It'll come. But mm -hmm. um, I'm looking forward to doing that because there are so many things yeah. when I do these interviews, these thoughts that come up, like I mentioned earlier. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, great thoughts. it's great fascinating. Thoughts. really is. Well, Alan, I thank you so much. I do have three final questions that I do yeah. want to ask you. But uh, before I ask those questions of you, 
I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story. New paradigms for a new world as we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Wednesdays. That is our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We're streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We have podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, a whole bunch of other locations on the internet, too many, too numerous to mention. We are on YouTube where we, uh, where we have the video. You can watch these interviews, the interviews. And we hope that you'll subscribe or at the very least uh, hit the notification button so that you can be notified every time a new interview is posted. We also ask that if you can support the work we're doing, we have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. When they ask you for an email address to whom to send, the uh, contribution to, the support to. Uh, it's richard at richarddugan.com. That's richard at richarddugan.com. And we'd ask that you spend some time during this, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, going within and listening to that still small voice. Now, there's an area, Alan, that we didn't get into. And every time I get to this point in the program, I'm going, darn it. I'm going to have to have you back <laughs> to talk about that aspect of intuition as it might be mentioned in some of these classics. Uh, but yeah. we ask you to spend that time listening to that still small voice, especially now, especially with some of the hard times that a lot of people, people are facing, primarily due to nature and what Mother Nature is, uh, is uh, putting out there. We'll make it. We'll make it. Just hang in there. But uh, it wouldn't hurt to spend a little time in that quiet space. With all that said, Alan, um, as I said, three questions that I ask, they've changed over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one will always remain, at least I believe it will. And that is, who is Alan Hunter? Alan Hunter is a person who is passionate about ex exploration of the deep psyche and also passionate about getting people to live the best life they possibly can. I do it through writing. What is your life's purpose? Oh, well, I think that's also covered in, in part one. My life's purposes are threefold. My life's purpose is to be the best counselor and advise, advisor I can be. My life's purpose is to tell my own truth in all my writings. And my life's purpose is to be the best grandfather I possibly can. Mm. These four little girls who run around and make life so wonderfully chaotic. <laughs> Our final question. What was your best day? Oh, my best day. Well, isn't every day one's best day? <laughs> <laughs> what a pleasure it has been to speak with you and to and to speak with someone who really understands what I'm talking about, who responds, <laughs> who, who, who resonates with it. I mean, is, does it get any better than that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Alan, once again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and we will have you back because, uh, oh, because of you. some of the other works and studies that you've done that you've got in book form, and we encourage people to go to your website, alanhunter.net. You can find all of his books certainly through his website, but on Amazon.com and many other uh, outlets, uh, uh, both Internet as well as probably you can find them at your uh, brick and mortar if you have one still in your neighborhood, in your area. And uh, again, we really appreciate the time you've given us here today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me onto this wonderful show for this great conversation. I mean, 
I, I feel just so delighted to have spent time with you. Thank well, thank you. you very much. And who knows, maybe in the not-too-distant future, we'll be able to do this in person. I would love to, because that oh, will change great. the dynamic as well. That would. That would be yeah. great. Oh, yes. I look forward to that. Until our next broadcast, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am still listening.